Welcome to the third story. I'm Leo Sidrin with a little mini bonus dispatch from the Italian countryside. Umbria Jazz is one of Europe's most famous jazz festivals. It's nearly 50 years old. It was started in 1973 by Carlo Pagnotta, a man who is now in his 90s and still oversees the festival today. But you'd never know he's 90. He looks like maybe he's 70. I met him the other day and I asked him what his secret was. And although his English is not so great, his answer was clearly red wine. Maybe it's a bit of a cliche, but I got the feeling that if I had pressed him any further on the matter, he might have come up with one or two additional factors that sustained him along the way, none of which would come as much of a surprise. Jazz is, of course, often referred to as America's art form, and although the conditions that created the music are distinctly American, without Europe, it seems that jazz would not survive. Every summer, hundreds of the greatest practitioners of the music and hundreds of thousands of fans gather across Europe to come together and celebrate it. It has also sometimes been said that jazz is not so much a music as it is a way of traveling, and that is certainly the case at the Umbria Jazz Festival. I found myself recently sitting in the Piazza d'Italia in Perugia, which is where the Umbria Jazz Summer Festival has been held for nearly half a century. Sipping my coffee, watching the people stroll by, eating gelato, because there's a whole lot of gelato in Perugia, and waiting for something to happen. That's what you do. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. When in Perugia, sit and wait and watch the people eat gelato. I once heard that if you stand in Times Square for long enough, everyone you ever knew will eventually walk past you. Well, it kind of felt that way in Perugia, too, because within the space of a few short minutes, I found a friend strolling with his gelato. It was record producer Matt Pearson, who was in town to accompany Samara Joy and Pasquale Grasso. Both are artists that he produces, and they're on tour together right now. As a matter of fact, I spoke with Samara just 10 days earlier in Montreal, where she had just walked off stage at her first festival as a headliner. And here she was a week later in Umbria with a nightly residency and a few more big gigs under her belt. Matt Pearson has been in the jazz business for a long time, so I asked him to provide some context for the European connection. It is an American music, and we love our homeland, and certainly all hope and wish and try to affect the change there so that there's more of a fan base for the music. But in reality, if you ignore the borders, the base of live performance of, of this music and jazz and most jazz-adjacent music is in Europe. Um, it's just the way it works. The festivals here, the festival circuit, the fan base, the government support of the music, um, the actual respect for musicians and what they do, uh, the press infrastructure, it's, it's just amazing. So obviously for a lot of jazz people, you know, it's, it's been since I first got in the business. It, what do you do in July? Oh, well, you go to Europe, you know, and you do a handful of the festivals and you have some time off and you get to do a lot of, like a lot of hanging. There's another thing about the hang in an environment like, like this, because it's not just, oh, we're going to hang and we're going to go home. It's like that thing that happens whenever I have a chance to produce a record out of town. Like that idea that you're with people and then you go somewhere that's not your home. There's something that way then your home becomes the people you're working with. Mm -hmm. And your connection with people is that strong. So, The other piece of it that I'm aware of is there is such a strong feeling of independence among you know, so many artists today that we can do it ourselves, we can distribute it ourselves, we can pay for our own records, we can book our own gigs. And as much as of that as I think is true and real, I'm also made aware that the business is still real, that there are all of these mechanisms in place, booking agencies, labels, producers, who really are making this 
clock tick on a level that I guess it's something to, to be aware of, that the, the business is still a business. Yeah, and again, when you talk specifically about jazz, we had an infrastructure that was in place up until about 20, 15, 20 years ago, where, especially in the States, you had a certain number of clubs, you had a bunch of retailers, you had radio stations in all markets, you had record, every record major record company had a jazz division, so there was all of this going on, and then once the internet launched, there was all these jazz, you know, jazz.com and all these places to go online. Um, so there was an infrastructure that existed. But post-Napster, LimeWire, and um, all of that, the record industry contracted in such a way that they bounced a lot of genre music to the curve. And that doesn't mean that jazz went away. It meant that the infrastructure became fractured and, and, and diversified in a way that those of us that made the decision to stick it out, you kind of, it's kind of cool in this way. You kind of build your own infrastructure as it will fit you and your art. So you'll look at artists and it's, it used to be everyone kind of checked off all the same boxes. Now we still check off those boxes, but the boxes are these concepts. Mm -hmm. So it used to be promotion. It's like you're going to go to radio and do an interview and you're going to get played on the playlist. Well, now it's streaming is kind of promotion. Certainly social media is promotion. All of the hand-holding and things that you do before and after gigs and all of that is personal promotion. Uh, Direct-to-fan concepts, you know, whether it's uh, crowdsourcing and all that, that's all promotion. And everything I just mentioned is generally has to be artist-driven to be successful. It used to be when I was running a label and deciding who to sign, the talent and all that was first and foremost. But one of the things that was so important was to know that You'd ask yourself, will this artist be willing to do what it takes and follow the things that we need them to do to get in front of people? So that ability to do a good interview and to schmooze and to feel comfortable after the gig and, and to, to know that there are some business people you got to put up with. Not about not being yourself, but knowing that this is part of the game. And that would be a plus mark for the artists at that point. Today, it's like breathing. You can't exist without having those chops. And there are artists that some people look at, and still in jazz, you'll say, how'd that guy get so successful? Someone's thinking, and then you look, you go, oh my God, look at that YouTube series he did, or look at that group, that, that, that Instagram feed that he created where people started going to hear him do cover songs of all gospel tunes. Like any, you name it, it all kind of happened. It's about survival, and I think that what you see here you see the artists that are booked this year, many of the issues have to do with, those are artists that have been doing that work. Mm -hmm. If you're an artist that's willing to make a connection with your audience and then use that connection to expose them to some real shit, then you can win. You know? One of the most common conversations in festivals like this involves some form of the question, what is a jazz festival? Or even, what is jazz? And why are there so many pop acts at a jazz festival? Enzo Capua, one of the creative consultants for Umbria, gave me his read on that question. We have several venues here, okay? Open air, also indoor, like the theater. But also we have, you come tonight, a big arena for 5,000 people. Can you name some uh, jazz musician who can fill a room for 5,000 people? Maybe one or two in the world now. Herbie yeah. Hancock, yes. when Chick was alive. And of course, Sonny, Sonny's a dear friend of us, so he's not playing anymore. At the same time, to sustain the expenses yeah. in the theater, this theater are like 500, 600 seats. 
And of course, we have to pay big musicians. Uh, the revenues from that I, I help us to cover this. And also, when you have a space for 5,000 people, remember, this is, this is a region, Umbria, a sponsor, main sponsor uh, of the festival. So we are, let's say, we work with public money, and they want to see people everywhere. So that's why we do pop. The first one to start this was Montreux. Then I remember I was in Montreal when they opened with a uh, with big concert, uh, uh, the pop music, and then I said, this is the time now, we cannot say no. When you have 10 days to fill a room, a room, a space of 5,000 people, you cannot have less than 3,000 people every night, otherwise it would be miserable, no? Enzo explained how and why there's room for everything at an Italian jazz festival. Meanwhile, drummer Terence Higgins was simply concerned about leaving room for dessert. We're on our way to dinner, yeah. but I'm sure it's going to be like a three-course meal. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking for some good pasta, you know, so in Italy, so, you know. you got to eat after the gig. You can't yeah. eat like you that before the Yesterday gig. Yesterday we did eat before the gig. Yeah. It was brutal. And then you got to play the gig after that. We played the gig, but we all were like, <laughs> it was like, because we had three courses. We had like pasta, yeah. then we had more pasta, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then it was like a uh, third course and yeah. something else. And it was like, we couldn't even move after that. We was all in that, like, that Ida stage, you know, <laughs> eat all that food. But we had a good show, but after that, I'm, I immediately went to bed. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't. No hang. Couldn't hold my eyes open. Yeah. Saxophonist Dave Kaz also considered the culinary questions of road life in Italy. I feel like I've uh, drank my weight in wine. Yeah. Is that a good idea? No, it's a terrible idea. <laughs> but is it a bad idea not to drink wine in Italy? It is a bad idea yeah. not. So it's kind you of have a... To, you have to do it. And uh, you have to eat a lot and you have to have the dessert. And we're walking by people that have the gelato right yeah. now and it looks amazing and I'm very yeah. jealous. In your experience, does the environment have some effect on the music and on the way you play, like you're spending an afternoon in a town like this? We were talking about this earlier today, and that's the thing, especially when you get out of your own comfort zone, your own country, and you get a chance to see other cultures, and you spend time in the culture, yeah. and you have a great meal, and you talk the language, and you, you see the people, and you see these old buildings that have been here for centuries, and then you can kind of put that into your performance, because you're in a foreign country performing. And this sounds a little cliche, but we really are so blessed to be able to travel the world and play music, play our music in different countries. That's not lost on me. And especially for me, I don't really, Europe is one of those places that's been hard for me. Uh, it's not been, for whatever reason, uh, like the other night when we played uh, jazz at the end, mm -hmm. that was the first time in 32 years of record making that I'd ever played in France. So it was beyond exciting. While Dave Koz was marveling at the majesty of ancient Italy, singer Kurt Elling was just trying to get through the night and hoping for a good audience. Kurt Elling, you are a road maniac. I, I hate to be cynical, but do you know where you are before you walk out on stage? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I always make sure. Day. I always make sure. I might not know. I don't know where I'm going to be tomorrow. Yeah. That's too far in the future. Yeah. I well, know where I am now. Well, that's what this is about. It's about being in the moment. It's not about the past or the present. Well, if you're going to make a highfalutin thing out of it, then sure. <laughs> Listen, what? I just hope there's people out there in the audience who want to hear what we're about to do. That's all I care about. I'm in good voice. The band is hot. 
there's going to be dinner at some point, but the most important is like, is there people out there? Because I really, we got something that I want to lay on them, and that's all I care about. Anything, anything to get over with these people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anything indeed. The third story is a collaboration with WBGO Studios. Visit wbgo.org studios to find out more. As always, you'll find the complete archive at third-story.com, where you can also sign up for the mailing list, drop me a line, and all the rest. If you like what you hear, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a review, tell your friends, or throw a few lira in the bucket at patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast. I'll be back in your headspace again before you know it. Until then, I'll talk to you soon. This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org studios.